at this time, children up through sixth grade can head off to children's church. And we're going to get back into the book of Daniel. If you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to find Daniel chapter 3. We've started a series, it's a short series in this book. We call this Faith in the Real World. Faith in the Real World. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, honestly, I'm just kind of finding it fun to go back to these some of these stories that have been familiar or these kind of passages that have been familiar, but uh, kind of really refreshing them for us. So the first six chapters uh, of Daniel are called historical narrative, historical narrative. So I grew up calling them Bible stories. I don't know about you. We grew up calling them Bible stories. Well, the problem with that language is that we've generally come to equate stories with fiction. Like some of you have told me your stories of going fishing, (laughs) right? That's fictional. You tell me what you caught out there. You know, it's a great story, but it's, yeah, it's this big. Yeah. And uh, so it's really, um, you know, biblical historical narratives are true accounts that are meant to teach us things, meant to kind of enrich our lives, first of all, to teach us about the character of God and the, and the plans and the power of God. And then secondly, um, these passages are meant to kind of bring guidance to our life, understanding to our own lives, the, 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 the personalities in these accounts, and I'll use the word story, but you know what I mean, these, these true accounts are, are mentors. They're meant to like show us so that we can say, oh, I don't have to make those mistakes, or I can learn things from these people. God has given you a book full of mentors to to follow along, and Daniel is one of them. Now, of course, you think, well, that's ancient history. That's 2,600 years ago. It can't possibly be relevant for today. Everything's different, don't you know? And I would say, not really. The basic human condition has not really changed. Uh, We all want, you know... I'm not going to go into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but you, you, you really want security, right? You want safety. You want acceptance. You want, you want to be provided for. You, you, you want life itself. Now, some of you would say, well, things have changed. I can't live without Wi-Fi. Okay, well, there's a few things that are different today. Coffee and ice cream would be in those categories as well. Can't really live without that. But generally, we're, we're talking about you know, that core of our being. And that hasn't changed. And and we may be put into situations in our life where you actually have to choose what's it going to cost me? What am I willing to pay for these very things like acceptance, for security, for life itself? And that's what chapter 3 is about. So chapter 3, it's calling this one paying the price of faith as we're in Daniel chapter 3. Let me just really review very quickly Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. In Hebrews, in Daniel chapter 1 and 2. In Daniel 1, we learned how, let's go to that um, slide of the map there if we can, how uh, Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonians and people had been moved off into exile, a number of them including some um, kind of well-to-do families and young men of these families. And some of them were enlisted into the king's civil service. So Daniel and three of his friends, Shadrach, that became renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were their uh, given names. And they have a situation where they're being required to eat food that's not kosher for them. And uh, they have to make this choice and how God kind of meets them and delivers them as they take a stand for what's right. 
Then in chapter 2, we, we learn how Daniel saves them and many others because uh, this crazy King Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill everybody because he's had a dream and nobody can tell him what his dream was or what it means. But of course, he won't tell anybody what his dream was. And uh, so he's quite a quite a crazy guy. And God allows Daniel to to know the dream, to know the interpretation of the dream. And because of that, uh, the people are saved. And it's just a, a great um, moment of God's rescue and God's power. Well, now we're going to be into chapter 3. And as we get into chapter 3... What we see is that King Nebuchadnezzar, who's still relatively new in his, his position, his authority, has, has set up a, a pagan worship festival. And he wants everybody in his kingdom, or particularly everybody who's in, in his administration, to bow down and worship before this idol that he sets up. And because it's a, it's an act to consolidate his power. You've got all these different factions that he's brought together and he says, Hey, I'm the guy in charge, and to prove it, you're all going to worship this image. It happened, this is nothing, you know, this continues today. Totalitarian regimes and oppressive regimes often will use some kind of dogma or religion as a way of kind of controlling people and get people to, to, to f- come under their power by, by using religion. Even if it's something like atheism, they use that. So that's, that continues today. So I want you to look at Daniel chapter 3, and... Uh, I'm going to try to get us through this whole passage. It's 30 verses long, so you can remain seated as we go through this. But Daniel chapter 3 begins like this. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue at 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We're never told what the statue is, likely a, an idol, an image of the God that he preferred, the God he worshipped. Then a herald shouted, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow down to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Verse 7. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that the king had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of these musical instruments. Verse 11, that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. Verse 12, but there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, and they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you've set up. Verse 13, well then... Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and he ordered that these men be brought before him. And when they were, they were in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you, you from my power? Verse 16. The young man replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, 
we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Well, verse 19, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with them that his face became distorted with rage and he commanded the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. There's not like a measuring stick for that. It's just, that's a way of just saying, make it as hot as you can probably make it. Just crank up the bellows, make those things red hot, right? And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind them and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. I love that little detail on there. And because the king and his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tired, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. Verse 25, look. I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god or looks like a son of the gods. Uh, Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so they stepped out of the fire and the high officers, officials, governors and advisors crowded around them and saw the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Even their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or language, speak a word against the god of these men, they will be torn limb from limb. This guy loved this one, didn't he? They will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There's no other God who can rescue like this. And then the king promoted them to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Wow. What an account. What what, what a situation. What I, I don't know if you can like imagine yourself in their shoes. I don't know how it would do in that situation. I don't like pain. I don't even like the thought of pain. I particularly don't like the thought of being in a fire. I mean, that's just terrifying. I like to negotiate. I like to come up with an alternative plan. Maybe we can come to an understanding, O king. Maybe we can make some arrangements. Everyone around them is bowing. And maybe they could have just said, well, well, we're only, we're only bowing on the outside. In our hearts, we're standing up. We're just, we just don't want to offend anybody. So we're just going along. We don't really mean it. We're just, we're just trying not to offend anyone. And that's why we're going to bow down. No. No, they stand their ground. And in case we forget, let, let me remind us that, that we're in a spiritual battle. And, and the battle is for people's souls, for your soul, for your very life, for your eternal life and for people's lives. And the enemy is Satan, the devil, who, when he speaks according to Jesus, speaks deceit, speaks lies as his native language. The devil is the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's how he operates. So it's a war. It's a battle. And when you... By faith, follow Jesus and lead others to faith in Christ. You can expect to be spiritually assaulted. And the temptation, of course, is to go private with our faith. It's like what happened in the 2016 election. You know, the polls predicted victory for one candidate. And everybody was very surprised when the other candidate won. 
I'm convinced it's because when the people were polling, people who were going to vote for this candidate didn't want to be, you know, mocked or humiliated for not voting for this candidate. So they said, well, we're going to vote for that one. But really, they were going to vote for this. That's private politics. All right. Politics is not that important. doesn't really matter. Matters of faith are eternally important. Everything matters right now. This account of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reminds us this really important thing. Your faith is public. Your faith is public. I, I know it's personal. Your faith is a personal thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, your choice, your decision to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And it is a decision. Everyone has to make that decision. There's a, there's a choice to either say, yes, I trust Jesus for salvation. I trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin and to be made right with him. I trust Jesus and I, to exchange my life for his life to be made a new creation. Or that's one choice. Or the other choice is to say, I'll do it on my own. Thank you very much. This idea of like, well, I'll just try to be a good person and hopefully it all works out in the end. That's not one of the options. That's a nice wish, but that's not one of the options. You have a choice. Trust Jesus or trust yourself. So, yes, that's a personal choice because you must personally make that decision. But sometimes we confuse personal with private. Right? The culture says, keep your beliefs to yourself. Thank you very much. We don't want to hear about it. It's private. That's a great idea. It's a great idea, but it doesn't work. Genuine faith in Jesus at some point is going to cause you to go public. It's going to force you to go public. It could get costly for you to go public with your faith. There are several high-profile cases right now in, in, the, in our country. Maybe you've heard about them. One, one is, uh, there's, I'll share a few examples. One guy, his name is Jack Phillips. He's a baker. Lives in Colorado and uh, was asked to bake a cake for a, a same-sex um, union. And uh, he just said, I, I just can't. I, as a Christian, I, my conviction says I can't do this. And so he, the state took him to court. He nearly lost everything. It went to finally the Supreme Court. And he got a kind of a soft victory in that. But it looks like he escaped that attack. Maybe you've heard about... Baronel Stutzman, she's a florist in Washington State. Similar story. Uh, a, a customer that she liked very much, considered him a friend of hers, came and said, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, getting married to uh, my same-sex friend, and, and uh, would you do the flowers? And she said, I just can't. You know that I can't. My, I'm a believer in Jesus. I love you, but I can't endorse this in that way. The state of Washington is, has taken her to court and it was in the Supreme Court. It's been bounced back to Washington. They're reworking the case a little bit. There's a couple of gals in Phoenix, Arizona. One's, uh, their names are Joanna Duca and Brianna Kosky. And they have a card-making company. They, they create unique and, and interesting wedding invitations. And the same thing. And the city of Phoenix has a, has a law. And so they're facing a $2,500 a day fine and up to six months in jail if they won't make cards. And they've got to make a choice. Are they going to stand for their faith? Or are they going to give up their business? What are they going to do? And that's before the courts right now. Now, I, I'm not trying to sensationalize this situation, but I want you to understand there are people in our around you, believers, who are going through real-life decisions of like, what's it going to cost me to put my faith in Jesus? 
and it could get worse than losing your business. I don't know if you've caught this in the news that in, in Nigeria, just this past June, there's been kind of this ongoing kind of oppression uh, in in an area of kind of Christian area of Nigeria, but there's a, a group called the Fulani Tribesmen, and they went on a three-day killing spree and burned down a, a dozen Christian villages, slaughtered about 200 people, and displaced 3,000 more. And, and there's like, what do we, what do we do? We're, we're followers in Jesus, and it's costing us our lives, our homes, everything. They've they've got to make a choice, and you know, other places to to. Leave your religion and follow Christ could mean losing your family or losing your life. It's repeated all over the place, all the time. If you're interested in hearing kind of the more positive side of that, uh, I invite you to join me. Becky and I are going to go to a, a one-day conference in November in San Jose. And uh, there's just inspiring stories. We've got a little promo uh, flyer there on the screen for you, you to see. If you want to know more about that, talk to me. Great. Stories of people standing for their faith and persecution. It's just outstanding. So, But you've got that sense of like, this is very real for a lot of people. And these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were, were good employees for the king. They'd been promoted to positions of power and authority. These are good guys. They're bright. They're hardworking. They're respectful, just like you are in your workplace. They weren't causing any trouble. They weren't stirring up a, a revolt or rebellion against the king. But the command to worship the pagan image, the idol, was, was their line in the sand, and they just could not cross that. And their peers hated them for their faith in God. You see that there in verse 12. Halfway through, it says, they're, they're speaking to the king, the official, says, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you've set up an exaggeration on their part, but they're building their case against these men. Now, you can be as quiet about your faith as you want, but you're living it publicly. You are. Your peers, your co-workers, your classmates, your neighbors, your family members, your friends, they, they know if you're a believer. And they're watching to see if and how you're going to maintain your integrity. And if the unbelieving world around us sees no difference between a believer and an unbeliever, why would they be attracted to Jesus? What, what's the draw? What's the appeal if they don't see any difference? Jesus didn't call us to just privately, you know, believe and hold it to ourselves and wait for the end. We're to live fully alive in Him, connected to Christ in every way, connected to, to the body of Christ in every way, knowing Jesus and making Him known to the world around us. But what can happen is you've got this pressure to conform, to, to get along, go along, to get along. And we might find ourselves rationalizing or, or, or justifying compromise so that we can be accepted by people and instead of rejected. We want to be respected by the people around us. But you know what? No one respects a fake. No one respects a fake. And, and I'd say it this way, that you never win by giving in. You never win by giving in. You just don't. You just don't. I was thinking about some current examples of this and dumb things I've said and, and decisions I've made or things I've agreed to I wish I hadn't. And, but, you know, as, as I was kind of thinking about that, I immediately was was transported back. And you'll have to forgive me going back in my history. It's just And maybe I've shared this story before. Forty years back, 
I was sitting there like, it just came back to me as clear as day. I'm a fifth grader. And, and I'm a good kid in a, in a small elementary school. And I'm trying to impress the older kids. And so I drop some profanity just to be cool and fit in. Because that'll make them accept me. And I just remember it so clear. This kid, his name was Dean. And Dean turned to me after I said that. He goes, you don't talk like that. You're a Christian. I just was just filled with remorse and shame and embarrassment. And I just, oh, Jesus, please forgive me. And, you know, in the kind of the anguish of a 10-year-old. But it's really true. You don't win by giving in. They don't say, oh, finally, now you're cool. No. Happens as adults, right? Someone's making off-color jokes and, and rather than, you know, withdrawing or trying to create a little distance or resisting that, we, we kind of join in and get a good laugh and, well, cause we want to be accepted. Or, or maybe it's how we handle money or, or how we handle sex or how we enter entertainment or whatever it is and we just, we just want to, we just want people to like us. You, and I, we, we know of more than a few broken hearts of, of young, men, young women and young men who, who gave in to peer pressure of any number of kinds, only, only to find themselves discarded once they'd been used up. Didn't work out the way they thought it was going to. The Hebrew boys in Babylon knew you don't win when you give in. They were perfectly polite in their refusal. But they knew if they caved on this one, it was over. It was done. Because not only would they have violated their own conscience and, and blasphemed God by worshiping an idol, they would have given ammunition to their opponents. Ah, oh, well, we saw you do that. Why can't you do this? There would always be another exchange and a worse one. The enemy of your soul, the devil, has an insatiable appetite for destruction. The the devil doesn't just want you on his side. He's not just trying to enlist you to his team. He wants to steal the glory of God. That's That's the work of the enemy, to steal the glory of God. And he does that by destroying your life, destroying your witness, destroying your integrity. So he can laugh in your face. He can laugh in the face of God. Remember, some of you know the story of Job. God, what, what, what happens? You can read about it in the Old Testament. This guy named Job, he's like an honorable guy. And the devil goes to God and says, let me, let me cut him down. God says, you can try. What's the devil trying to do? The devil doesn't care about Job. The devil's trying to steal God's glory. That's what he does. And the pressure on these young men had to have been enormous. I... I wonder how much of the dialogue is omitted in our in our record here. Because you can imagine the king saying something like, you know, like, okay, guys, let me get this straight. I I appointed you to significant positions in my administration, my administration. And now you have the nerve to refuse what I'm telling you to do. Is that really how this is going to go down? I mean, can you imagine the pressure? It's it would be terrifying. And you've heard stuff like this. After all I did for you, you treat me like this. After all that, after all I've given to your cause, you're not going to bend and do this this way. Turns out Nebuchadnezzar's generous appointments of power were appointments with strings attached. 
And verses 16 to 18 are really key, especially where they, they said to the king, King, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Because they understood that God can stand up for himself. He can. And ultimately, God is our judge, not our peers, not the boss, not the teacher or the principal or, or even your parents. They're not the judge. God's the judge. And God's the one to whom we answer. And so if my faith, even should my faith cost me my life, doing the right thing is still worth it. Because the glory of God matters more than my life and matters more than my body. Which leads to one last thing we need to notice in this whole account, and it's this, that real faith is no matter what faith. Real faith is no matter what faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, You see in verses 17... Let me pick it up. 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to, to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue set up. Hey, king, no matter what, we're not going to reject our God. That's no matter what faith. Their faith was not in the hope of a rescue, right? It was not a conditional faith. I'll trust God if he saves me. It was a no matter what faith. It wasn't a hope in some good feeling that God would give them. Oh, I just feel so good. No, there was no sense of entitlement, no sense of privilege. Their faith was in God, the God who could save them, but didn't have to, was not obligated to do that. Some of us think the worst thing that can happen to us is to die, to lose our physical body. Well, should the worst happen, we say, it's not the worst. It's not the worst that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is to lose your faith. The worst thing that can happen is to to miss out on the glory of God. To, to, To betray that in some ways. Our bodies are temporary. They're a fragile house a short-term rental that's all we are in our bodies and i i I can hear some of us saying in my own mind i've said this i say yeah but if god is so good and god's so loving why not just rescue them before the fire like why not just step in and say hey guys you're doing great don't worry about it i'm gonna just gonna like wipe out king nebuchadnezzar he's gonna fall to his death in front of you because you're just so brave why not? That would be really cool, wouldn't it? Oh, it'd be fantastic. Well, why not? Why not rescue before the crisis? Is God obligated to pull us out of hard circumstances? Does God owe us anything? If God seems silent, does that mean he's not there? Or that he doesn't care. He's God. He's not our pet. He's not our co-pilot. He's not our personal assistant. He's God. We need to remember that. Now, I am amazed at people who suffer terribly and then they say it's the best thing that ever happened to them. I think I've shared with you some of those conversations I've had. You know, I remember my sister-in-law dying of cancer. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. A friend who, who lost his life to Lou Gehrig's and he's completely immobilized and said, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. What? What are you talking about? How, how do you get there? 
by allowing those difficult circumstances in a no matter what kind of faith, saying, I'm finding an intimacy, I'm finding a, a relationship with God that I never knew possible. And even for those who've said, well, my faith's a no matter what faith. My, my, my faith's an even if God doesn't rescue me faith. I, I want you to know that those people are finding a place of intimacy with God. But, but what about standing up for what's right? I mean, surely the baker and the florist and the card maker, surely they need to be defended. I agree. I, I think evil ought to be resisted in all its forms. And, and so I'm trusting in the work of good godly people and, and, and the, the justice of God himself to resolve those matters. But those matters may not get resolved in the way we want to see them resolved in this life. Because even if God doesn't rescue them now, he's still worthy of praise. Do you and I have a no matter what kind of faith? To say, God, even when I'm standing alone, even when the diagnosis is bad, even when the bank account's empty, whatever it is, even if I'm bullied in the classroom, you students, for my faith, will I stand? God, I will praise you no matter what. Even if you're the only believer in the room, the staff room, the classroom, whatever setting you're in, even then, the good news, of course, in this episode is that God did rescue them and in rather dramatic fashion. A, a fourth personality appeared. There's debate whether that was an angel or whether that was a, an appearance of Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus in the flesh before he was given to us in the flesh. That doesn't, we don't really need to unpack that. That's not really important. The reality is that God rescued them in really a way that didn't just pull them aside and say, hey, I got you guys. It was like, I got these guys. See this? See what I'm doing? God has a way of rescuing in a way that makes others look and say, oh, God is really good. Nebuchadnezzar comes around and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Hands off. Nobody touch this God. Nobody, nobody can even say a word against him or I'm going to do that thing with the trees and the limbs and the... Yeah, God may not come through in the way we want to. But he's going to come through in a way that he can get the glory if we're willing to give it to him. He may answer those prayers in that kind of way. The, wow, God, your God is amazing way. But just remember, your faith is, it's not private, it's, it's public. And how you're living that faith out matters. So if there's some junk going on, you need to get it right. You need to go to some people maybe and just say, hey, I've, I really haven't been doing a good job of representing what I really believe. I need you to forgive me for that. I'm human like everybody else, but, but I'm working on it. That would be okay to do. Your faith's public. It's not private. And, and you never win by giving in. You never win by giving in. It's particularly young people heading back to school and there's just so much on you. You don't win by giving in. And real faith is no matter what. Let's pray. God, we're 
really grateful for this account that you preserve this for us. Real guys in a real time going through really scary circumstances. Thank God you proved yourself to them. And Lord, there's none of us in this room that, that, that hasn't had those moments of saying, God, are you going to come through? Where are you? God, God, can't you, can't you do something about this situation? We've all been there, God. But we're, we're, we're reminded, God, and we're recognizing that you're bigger than that. You're bigger than our circumstances. Your glory is more important than our physical bodies. Your glory is more important than our bank accounts and our reputations and all those things. And God, I just ask that you would, by your, by your, by your way, by your power, that you, you would empower us to be the kind of people who live like these young men. No matter what, to trust you. To not hide and, and try to hide our faith, but to, to let it be known. God, we just thank you that you are good. You're good to us. You are good. And church, I just, I just want to say, um, you know, if you are somebody that's in a place where you are so feeling so like overwhelmed in your workplace or your home or your school and you really feel all alone, you, you need to reach out to some people and we can pray for you. We can help you. And see God give you strength in this season. If you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never made that decision to trust Jesus for forgiveness of your sin and new life, I want to give you that opportunity right now. You just say, yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus. You just slip your hand up right now. We'll pray with you after the service. Anybody like that today? I'd love to help you with that. For the rest of us to say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you no matter what. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your presence here today and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.